I feel like I'm going to need lots of your help this morning because it's cold and it's gray and I'm feeling a bit tired as well. So feel free to like shout or cheer or boo or whatever you like, whatever you feel you need to. Not yet. I'll tell you when. I'll tell you, I'll tell you when. Not, not really. I'll hold the signs up. So we're, um, we're in week three of our series in the book of Jonah. And if you've been around the last few weeks, you'll know a little bit of the backstory. But Jonah is this book in the Old Testament of the Bible. It's about a prophet called Jonah who's called to go and preach a message of repentance and salvation to a people in Nineveh. Um, but Jonah, he absolutely does not want to go. And so he runs very, very far away from Nineveh. He runs to the opposite end of the known world, which happens to be the beaches of southern Spain. And he gets on this boat. Um, and we have been going through this amazing story. And um, if you've been around, you'll know that we've been, we've been kind of doing a bit of wrestling. And I've been deliberately um, poking and prodding and getting you to think and go to have coffees with people to, to talk about this because we've been debating, like, what kind of book is the book of Jonah? Because like every book in the Bible, we want to really go deep. We want to find out, like, what did God really mean when he spoke this book into being? Why is this book in front of us? And we've been talking a little bit about the genre. If you remember, we talked about the book of Jonah as prophetic writings, as something that speaks a message from God to a group of people. We've spoken about the book of Jonah as maybe best seen as a a narrative parable, like some of the parables that Jesus gave. Um, And then, of course, there are a whole uh, another group of scholars, really wonderful, spiritual people who see the book of Jonah as a sort of historical blow-by-blow account. Um, And someone sent me a message this week and said, hey, Ben, you know, you've given loads of reasons why maybe we might see it as a narrative parable but what's the evidence to say we should see this as historically accurate blow-by-blow account? And that's a great question, and there is loads of evidence to say that we might want to see it as a blow-by-blow account, um, and not least um, because Jesus uh, speaks about Jonah in the New Testament of the Bible. In Matthew chapter 12, Jesus speaks about the Ninevites and Jonah's time in the belly of the whale, um, and there's a lot there, which is really wonderful. And so I want to just encourage you, uh, as you're praying, as you're thinking, as you're wrestling in the pub over a lemonade, uh, you, <laughs> or something else, uh, you go and do some go and do some real research about this because it's really fascinating and it's really interesting. And if you're looking for one really good resource, which is good for Jonah, but it's good for everything, whenever we're studying the Bible, um, is the Bible Project by a guy called Tim Mackey. Now, it's particularly great if you don't love the idea of reading massive, thick commentaries, but you do like the idea of YouTube videos. And let's be honest, that's pretty much everyone in the room. Um, And so uh, on YouTube, you will see a really short, really brilliant, deep, overview of the book of Jonah uh, and every other book in the Bible. So always do go and check out um, Tim uh, Mackey and the Bible Project. That's a really good idea. But I know behind all of these debates, there is a bigger question that you all want to know about the book of Jonah. And of course, it's this one. Can a man be swallowed by a whale? Right, that's, that's the question in the book of Jonah. And you'll be pleased to know that after centuries of deep theological debate by some of the church's most brilliant minds this morning, we can finally settle that argument for you. And it goes like this. You're like, what? <laughs> okay. In June last year, a commercial lobster diver escaped relatively unscathed after being swallowed by a humpback whale. Uh, in a biblical-sounding encounter that whale experts describe as rare but plausible, And Michael Packard, 56, said in local interviews and on social media that he was diving off the coast of Provincetown, Massachusetts, when the whale suddenly scooped him up. He was about 45 feet down in the water when he suddenly felt this huge bump and everything went dark. 
He initially feared he'd been attacked by a shark. Then he said, I felt around and realized there were no teeth. I felt no great pain and realized, oh my God, appropriate response. I'm in a whale's mouth and he's trying to swallow me. I was in his closed mouth for about 30 to 40 seconds before he rose to the surface and spat me out. I'm very bruised up but have no broken bones. So there you go. Um, there are actually quite a few uh, examples of people being swallowed by whales if you go on the internet. Woohoo! Woohoo! Yeah. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know why that's relevant, but... Obviously, that is not the most important thing in the book of Jonah, because the book of Jonah isn't actually about whether somebody was inside a whale for three days. The book of Jonah is actually a message given to us, given to God's people, about the ways that we often sabotage our relationship with God. It's a mirror that we put up in our lives as we've done these last few weeks to say, oh my goodness, Jonah, what are you doing? Why are you behaving like that? And then as we do that, we go, oh yeah. I do that too. That sometimes I too have the same traits that Jonah does when I think that I am going to be in charge of my life when I recognize that I want to be the one calling the shots. And what I actually do is I run away from the very plans and purposes that God has for my life. And I think I'm running to life when actually I'm running away from it. And so this morning, we want to go to the next bit of our story through Jonah. If you remember, Jonah got on this ship. He's somewhere in the middle of the Mediterranean Ocean. A big storm comes. He realizes, the sailors realize, oh no, God is the one who brought this big storm. And actually, it's about Jonah. And so the sailors repent in advance and then throw Jonah off the side of the ship into the Mediterranean Sea. And we're going to have the next part of our reading this morning from Seth. And that comes from Jonah chapter 1, verse 17 to chapter 2.10. So if you've got it on your, in your Bibles, Jonah 1.17 to 2 verse 10. Hello, hello. There we go. I'm going to try to liven this up for this gloomy day. Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. He said, in my distress... I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help, and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the seas, and the currents swirled around me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again towards your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed has wrapped around my head to the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever, but you, Lord my God, brought my life up from the pit. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God, God's love for them, but I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. I will say salvation comes from the Lord. And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah on a dry land. Awesome. Thank you, mate. Let's just take a moment of quiet. Let's just invite the Holy Spirit. We're coming to God's word, which is always a really important thing. So let's just breathe in um, and then breathe out those, those things that are distracting us, those things that are clouding our minds and vying for our attention, which are not of God in this moment. Thank you, Lord. And as we unpack this, Lord, come by your Holy Spirit 
and help us to wrestle with truth and life in a way that would bring transformation to our hearts and our lives. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. So uh, three years ago, uh, Laura and I moved to L.A., And uh, I've realized uh, that in LA over these last three years, there is a set of voices which are perhaps more authoritative, uh, provide more guidance, more comfort, more direction, like no other voices that we have in LA. They transform the life of the city, and without this, the city could not function. And of course, the voices that I'm talking about are the voices of our sat-navs, right? Well, I thought so anyway. <laughs> when I first came to LA, I had to commute from here uh, in Pasadena down to Santa Monica. And every single day I would drive down, but because when I first got here, the data connection on my phone did not work really well. I had to rely on one of those really old school sat-navs that we now think were made in the 1950s in the dash of my car. The ones where you have to try and like put in where you're trying to go. It takes about five minutes to put in the directions, right? And then it kind of directs you on this tiny screen to the other side of the city. And every single day, I would get in the car and I would drive across the city. And after about 20 minutes, I would grind to a complete halt somewhere, like sort of quietly inward fuming that I must have done something completely wrong. Now, after two weeks, finally, I managed to get like a data connection that worked on my phone. And I managed to, you know, do what we all do now, which is to plug it in and I could put my phone in, in a way. And then, of course, you get to that point where you have to make a really important decision, right? Which sat-nav do you choose? Do you go for Apple, the one with the really beautiful maps and the stop signs, but no ability to actually direct you anywhere, as far as I can see? (laughs) Do you go for the OG, Google, which is connected to every other human being in the world and every organization and knows everything? Or do you go for Waze, right? Anyone, Anyone go for Waze? Yes, this is like evangelists for Waze, right? And if you're not sure what Waze is, and basically it's, it's very like the other two, except that it's connected to all these other users and has all this data, which means that if it can save you one minute in your journey between A and B, it will send you to the moon and back in order to get you there one minute faster, right? And I, I am secretly an evangelist for Waze because I am deeply impatient as a person, and, and I'm still working on that with the Lord. And what Waze basically does, if, you, if you've never tried it is you'll set it and you go like, okay, I'm going from Pasadena, I'm going to get on the 210 and the 134, and then I'm going to go down through the city and I'm going to hit the 10 to go down to Santa Monica. But what it actually does is you you start down that journey and then suddenly it changes from in 17 miles, take the exit on the right, and then it goes in 500 feet, take the exit on the right. That's what, and, and generally it does that when you're in the carpool lane, particularly it likes, likes that, that maneuver. Because what it's doing is it's like looking at all the different maps and all the different traffic around the city and it's suddenly realized that it's found you a, a faster, better, safer way to get to your um, destination. And in that moment, like, you've got a choice. Like, do you ignore the sat-nav And particularly, I think this is true for some of us guys who have a sort of slightly macho, inbuilt kind of desire to prove that we know traffic better than anybody else and that we know how to navigate anywhere without any help. Do you follow your own pathway or do you follow Waze? And and I have to admit, when Waze was kind of new, which was a long time ago now, um, I actually thought that it must be broken every time it did this. Um, and so one, one uh, day, we were actually going on a family holiday. We were going to the airport near London. We were driving on the M25, which is the, the, the freeway that goes round London, going to the airport. And Waze did that exact thing. It said, right, in the next half mile, get off, get off 
the road. And I thought it was broken, and so I completely ignored it. Um, sadly, uh, it was correct, and we stopped for six hours in the middle of the road and missed our flights to the beaches of southern Spain, which is ironic. Uh, in <laughs> but we're all kind of faced with those choices, do you? Do you follow this thing which supposedly is out there, you can't quite see it, but, but it supposedly knows what it's doing, or do we follow our own story? Do we follow our own intuition? Do we follow our own um, history? And that's obviously a small question when it comes to Satnav, but it's actually a much bigger question that we face in every area of our lives, right? Who calls the shots? Who is in control of your life? You know, I, I think when we think of God, this is the question that really lurks under the surface so often. When we, we say, actually, God, would you speak to me? What we really do is we actually have a couple of different lists going on, right? On one side, we have the things that we really want God to affirm because they're the things that we already really want to happen, right? So when I was, when I was a teenager, I used to go to these huge Christian kind of worship conferences. And secretly, every time I went to one of these conferences, what I was really hoping for was I was hoping for the prophetic leader on the stage to stand up and say, I think there's someone called Ben Chase. And he doesn't, he's not there yet, but he's going to be the next rock star international worship leader. And, and if he could just come up here right now, we've got a guitar ready for him and he can lead us all, all in worship. I, I, that was my story for many years. Or uh, there's this guy called Ben Chase and he's going to be this world leader. Or he's going to be this international sports star. He's going to be this super wealthy guy and we want to welcome that and affirm that. You know, because those are the kind of voices we really want to hear God say all the time, don't we? Like, this is going to be a story of immense blessing in your life. Yes. And we're already like, we're already pre-checked to go, yes, that must be the Lord. But then there's this kind of whole other set of, of things, which we're like, ah, no, I'm not so sure. Like, Lord, I think you're calling me to clean restrooms or be on the setup team or speak to my difficult neighbor about Jesus or uh, be a witness to you in my workplace. And when we hear those things, like really, we're already pre-programmed to say no. We've already got our excuses ready that we obviously heard wrong or ate too much cheese or that couldn't possibly be the Lord. And so we, we, we work out which ones are Lord and which ones are not. And what we actually do is, is that we, we're already in a get posture to run. And when we hear the Lord say something that we don't like the idea of, like, hey, go to Nineveh, we, we start to run. And of course, that's where we pick up our story of Jonah. Because Jonah's story is a story of running. And in Jonah's case, he runs as hard as he can go, even when it makes no sense. Because I don't know if you know this, right, but running from God doesn't make much sense. It, it, it doesn't make much sense because God kind of knows everything, right? When Jonah's on the ship, which we've picked up last week, he says, I am a Hebrew and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And what's Jonah's response? Get on a boat. It's not a very good idea but yet he continues to run. And we too, I think, often have that same posture, don't we, where we know secretly that God knows everything, and yet we choose to run as far away from him, as fast away from him as we can possibly go. It's like my, my, my kids, um, when my son, William, he was three years old, um, or two or three, I would go into his room in the morning at like 7 a.m. or whenever he woke up, and I'd pick him up, and I'd take him, and I'd put him in our bed. And Laura would be there, and I'd go downstairs, and I'd warm up some milk for him, and I'd come up. And every single day, the same thing would happen. I'd walk into our bedroom, he'd spot me, 
and he'd throw the covers over his head and over Laura's head. And every single day for a good couple of years, I had to go through the same ritual, which was this. I wonder where William is. Is he under the bed? No, he's not under there. Is he in the closet? And we would just go through that same rhythm. And then after about 20 seconds, he'd run out of air under the covers. And he'd like throw the covers back and surprise. And we're like, here we go. Isn't it? And it's kind of ridiculous to think back on it. It's very cute. It's very cute. But it was ridiculous. But it's exactly the same when we think that we can run from God. Because, of course, we go as far as we can possibly get to get away from the things that God wants for our lives when actually God knows everything. Right? God is everywhere. God knew everything about us before we ever did it. God formed us in our mother's wombs even before we had any consciousness. God is ever-present and he loves us. That's why King David, who had this real roller coaster of a life, he says this, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I make my beds in the depths, you're there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light becomes night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you, for the night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. Like Sooner or later, we all come to this realization that there is actually no way that you can go to run from God. There is no way you can physically, emotionally, and spiritually go where God is not actually already present because God is so loving and he's so wonderful. But the problem is, is that that doesn't seem to always stop us running. It didn't stop Jonah running. It didn't stop King David at times in his life running. And so what we actually end up with is a reality where it's like, well, this is God who you called me to be. These are the things that you have said of my life. These are the ways that you want me to live. These are the ways that you want me to treat relationships. These are the ways that you want me to treat other people. These are the ways you want me to treat my resources and my money and my time and my talent. This is the way you want me to live. But yet, I don't want that. And yet, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to run as far away as I can possibly get. And, and actually, I'm going to be predisposed to say, these are the things that I want you to speak to, God. And these are the things I don't want you to speak to. These are the places that I want you in my life, and these are the places I don't. Like, God, yes, I know you want to speak to my whole relationships and the way that I deal with that, but actually I'd be more comfortable if you just spoke to me on Sunday mornings about how you want to heal and bless me. Like, I know you want me to be like this in my business dealings and how I treat other people in a workplace, but actually I'd be more comfortable if we could just talk about the Bible on a Wednesday night. And so we create these religious boxes, these structures by which God fits into one and he doesn't fit into the other. But when actually God says, I am everywhere, I am in every moment, I'm in every situation, I'm in every relationship you have, I'm in every day and there's nothing that you can do and you can't do, which actually I don't already know because I love you and I'm there. And so running is not an answer that gives us any sense of satisfaction. But that is, of course, Jonah's story. To run from God is exactly where Jonah go goes. And that's why that actually scholars are, are really right to point to Jonah as a prophetic book. Jonah's words are prophetic in some respects, but actually even more than his words, the book of Jonah is very prophetic in its movement to do with the relationship of God. Because actually what Jonah is, is he's actually a representative of everything that God's people do throughout all of the Bible. 
Like when God, God says to Abraham, like, you will be the father of many nations, and through you I'm going to bless the world. And then through Moses, he says, actually, I'm going to set you aside as a chosen holy people. You will be different different to the world around you, different in the way that you do your relationships, different in the way that you treat people. And he creates this thing called the law, which we don't like because it's the word law. Um, but he creates these structures, and of course the structures are there for human flourishing. And they set the people aside so that the idea is that they don't look like the rest of the world. Because the rest of the world doesn't have God, and the people of God do have God, and so they're distinct and they're different. And so what God says is, I want you to live in this particular ways. But what happens is that for a while, of course, those people go, yeah, that sounds wonderful. We want that. We want everything that God has for us. And then this happens. They look out and they look at the world. And, and when Moses goes up the top of Mount Sinai and he gets the Ten Commandments, what do the people do? They look at their neighbors and they go, they've got a golden calf. Man, we should get a golden calf. I don't know why you'd want a golden calf, but they do, right? We should get ourselves a golden calf. And so they get a golden calf and they worship it. Or later on, God says, like, this is how I want you to deal with like, how authority and is going to work in your world. And they say, but our neighbors, they've got a king. We should definitely get ourselves a king. Or this is how you should deal with power and sex and money and relationships. And this is how you should treat each other. It should look like this and it should be distinct from everything else in the world around you. And yet the people go, yeah, but that's not what our neighbors are doing. That's not what the world does. And just little by little, step by step, the people go from being distinct, obvious, different, set apart, to becoming worldly, to becoming indistinguishable in, from the people around them. And here's the kind of really interesting thing, which I think we can pick up from Jonah and from the story of Israel, is that God allows that to happen. And about you, but when I do something stupid, there's a definitely a part of me which wishes that God would just like jump in right there. That would make life a lot less painful if, if it was like, okay, you just don't go down there. That's not going to work really well. Like stop immediately, force field, like don't do it. But God doesn't do that for the people of Israel. What God does is he actually allows the people of Israel to take that story, to live in the consequences of the brokenness of the choices that they make, right? And time and time and again, if you read through the Old Testament, where God's people get to, they get to exile. They get to captivity, they get to pain, they end up literally in the belly of darkness. And what, and what God would do though, is that in that moment, God wouldn't give up. Actually what God would do, would he, would, he would send a messenger. And the messengers would be the prophets. Jonah was a prophet. And the three things that they would say is this, is here's what you're doing, can you see it? Can you see the brokenness that you are causing? Number two, here's the thing, here's the way that you've abandoned your relationship with God and gone your own way. And three, this is what's going to happen unless you turn around and turn back to God. And that's why Jonah is very deeply prophetic, because this is, listen to the language of Hosea. They, which is the Israelites, they sow the wind and they reap the whirlwind. Israel is swallowed up now she is among the nations like something no one wants. Sound like a whale? It's exactly like the story of Jonah, right? You were distinct. I called you out. I wanted you to have a distinct identity in the world that was different, and yet you became completely worldly. You did your own thing. You were in charge of your own story, and guess what happened? You got swallowed up. Jeremiah 51. 
Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Babylon, has devoured us. He has thrown us into confusion. He's made us an empty jar. Like a serpent, he has swallowed us and filled his stomach with our delicacies. And then he has spewed us out. Not very nice language. But it's exactly the same language as the book of Jonah. Do you see it? Jonah is a prophetic writing because it mirrors the movement of God in the people of Israel. And when it mirrors the movement of people of God in Israel, of course, it also points to us and recognizes that we too sometimes do the same. That when God says of you and me, hey, Ben, I, I want you to be different. I want you to be like a city on a hill that's full of light. What do we do? We look at our neighbors we look, at, we look at the media. We look at the ways that our people work in our, in our workplaces or we look at the things that go on on social media and we're like, we should be like them because that's the way to get to life. And what we miss completely is that what we're doing is the same as Jonah, which is what we're running. We're running towards darkness. We're running towards the belly of a whale. And just like the Israelites, God doesn't stop it happening. And that's such a complicated thought, isn't it? It's like, God, why don't you just step in and do something? Why don't you stop me when I'm running towards like, some really stupid decision that I'm making? Well, we see in the book of Jonah today why he doesn't do that. And the reason that God doesn't stop Jonah reaping the full consequences of the actions that he is going down is ultimately this, because God loves Jonah. Now that seems a bit complicated, but God loves Jonah so much that he won't actually override his free will. And actually, instead, what we see is that God unleashes this concept, which we might call severe mercy. God wants Jonah to recognize where he is so that his life will be transformed. Just just look at this in, in this morning's reading from verse two and verse three. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord. He said, in my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From deep in the realm of dead, I called for help, and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the depths, in the very heart of the seas, and the currents swirled about me, and, your, and, and all your waves and breakers swept over me. Like Jonah, actually, in the, middle of the, in the middle of being in this place of darkness, he goes, actually, wow, God was not uninvolved in this. Actually, God seemed to allow this to happen. Now, that's really difficult for us to comprehend. And I want to be really clear. If you came to church this morning with cancer or a loved one who's just died, I am not even close to saying that God caused that to happen in your life. But what Jonah starts to realize is, oh, this place of darkness is not something different from what God wants to do in my life. Actually, God is working right here in this moment. That in the hardest place, in the darkest place, in the most awful place, God is doing something to teach me something. Because it goes on. I said in verse 4, I have been banished from your sight. But here's what he notices. Yet I will look again toward your holy temple. See, what Jonah's doing is he's actually reaching rock bottom. I mean, more like smelly in a fish kind of bottom, but that's where he is. And it's just like if you've ever read the AA um, guidelines, the 12 steps. The first one basically says, my life has become unmanageable. When Jonah gets into the belly of a well, what he realizes, oh, this is, this is the bottom. 
Like, there is nowhere to go for me that is darker and harder than this. But it's not the end. And that's the wonderful, incredible news of the Christian life, is that whenever we get to the bottom, it's not the end. Just like we said last week, when Jonah goes down, God goes down with Jonah. When Jonah finds himself in the belly of the whale, the reason he's there is actually to come to that place of repentance to recognize that there is a future and a different future. You see what God's doing in the belly of darkness. See, God is allowing Jonah to feel the full weight of the consequences of his decision in order to reveal the root of why he's self-sabotaging in the first place. And in that moment, to realize the severe mercy of God. Because it's in the belly of the whale that Jonah realizes that his stubborn individualism, his desire to be in charge, actually needs to break. That he realizes this independence that he wants to have to be in control of his life actually needs to turn to a dependence on God. And he realizes that he has to change. That's why, again, the second step of the, the, the 12 steps says, we came to believe that a power greater than ourselves can restore us to sanity. And that's why I think this is such an amazingly beautiful thing in Jonah, because you just look at as he goes in, in verse eight and verse nine, those, Jonah realized, who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. But I, I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. I will say salvation comes from the Lord. See, as Jonah gets to that place, where does he do at the bottom? He meets God at the bottom. What does he do at the bottom? He gives up those rights that he has, that stubborn independence. He meets God and he realizes, oh, this is how God works. God brings me to my knees of repentance so that I will find salvation from the Lord. It's a breakthrough moment because he's still in the belly of the whale, right? It's not, this is not a moment after the belly of the whale. But instead of lament, right in the darkness, blaming God, self-pitying, being a victim, being angry, he actually realizes, oh wow, actually I did this. I was involved in this, but actually God's invitation to me is to come back. God's invitation to me is to find a new beginning. God's invitation to me is salvation. And that's why I love what Jonah finds, because it's the same invitation that God has for you. I don't know, you know, when you came to church this morning, I don't know if you came like just jumping up and down and like I am in a great place with the Lord. Or whether you, like Jonah, came, came to church this morning like, actually, I have brokenness in my life. I am in darkness. I have run and I have areas in my life that actually are deliberately as far away from God as I can get them. I have put God in a box over there and I'm over here. But what the story of Jonah does, which is so wonderful, is it says this, that when we reach the bottom and we recognize that these things are not of God, that they are not of life, that they will not bring us human flourishing, when we realize that we've run from God, is that God will save us. That God has a new beginning for us. When we recognize that we've begun to ignore what God's asking of us and we've gone our own ways, when we come out of that place of denial and self-pity and anger that we have towards God or others, when we come out of hiding and be honest with God and let him lead us out of darkness, what he does is he leads us out of darkness and he leads us into light. And that's what God wants to do with you this morning. What Jonah does is he, vow, he cries out, I will make good and I will say salvation comes from the Lord. 
And so I just, as I, as I finish, I just want to offer you that, that invitation, you know, like, where this morning, where this morning do we have those places in our life where, if we're honest, they are far from the Lord? Whether it's a relationship, it's a way that we operate in some form of our calendar or in our work life. Where is it that we put God into one space? And where is it that, that God would actually want to say to us, hey Ben, hey John, hey Rachel, hey Sarah, whoever, this is dark, this is broken, but I got a better story. I've got a better story. And if you will come and you will repent and you will get on your knees and realize that you are in darkness now, I will write a new story in your life that's better than anything you've ever seen before. Because that's the story of God. That's the invitation of God. And so should we pray together. If you can want to stand, that would be great.